Welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast. I'm uh, Brookie, otherwise known as Peter Bruckner, and he's Burjo, otherwise known as Darren Burgess. Hey, Burjo. Hey, Brookie. Hey, Brookie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We have a guest all the way from Austin, Texas today. Why don't you introduce him? We do. A, a very good friend of mine. I'll, I'll uh, state my, my bias out, out the front and someone I've admired for a long time. Uh, Dave Tenney, welcome, mate. Thanks for having me on. Dave, uh, we always start by uh, by getting people to sort of tell us their their journey, tell us a story of their journey, because it's always it always fascinates me the uh, the different ways in people uh, the way people end up in high performance sports. So, why don't you start with uh, with your journey from uh, from your playing days and uh, and and your college and and so on, go from there and tell us uh, tell us your story. Okay, I mean it's. Uh... It's not the most exciting part, you know. I'm, I mean, like like many of us, I think I've I've listened to this so several times, and um, many of us are kind of want to be athletes, wishing we're a little bit better. Um, and I'm and I'm definitely in that group. I mean, I did play college soccer in the U.S. Was a goalkeeper, had aspirations to go to Europe. Um, did play a couple of years in the lower leagues of Germany, the third and fourth divisions of Germany, and um, not not terribly successfully. Um, came back and played a few years in uh, professional indoor soccer as well in the U.S. And, um, and and I think really just had this, at the time, really passion for coaching. You know, I mean, obviously going over and living in Europe and, and trying to make it as a player in Europe and being in that environment, you know, really made me love the sport of, of soccer. Um, and, and, and I grew up in a time in the U.S. when soccer had really taken off in that first league. And, you know, I grew up as a, as a, as a young kid with, you know, Johan Cruyff playing in Washington DC as I was a young kid, which, you know, having that opportunity was fantastic. And, you know, I had this passion for the sport and, and I think as I kind of came to the end of this, I mean, it, it's, it's nice to call it a career, barely a career, but, um, I really thought going in that I would be a soccer coach and potentially an academy director. I think as, as I was ending playing, I think my goal was really to be a, um, an academy director and really look at player development. Um, as I finished, went back to school, finished a degree in coaching science, um, you know, went right into the master's in exercise science from there. And, um, and just as I was doing all my coaching licenses, was lucky enough to take a course, you know, the, the A license course through the Czech Republic FA and, you know, and, and in at that time, and that was 2004. Um, and, you know, most of the Eastern European countries still were were had their their coaching licenses run by the actual sports science departments out of universities in a collaboration with the with the football associations. You know, so so I take this course in the Czech Republic, and it's highly scientific, and it's you know periodization models, and um, you know, run by this you know very very well well known researcher in sports science, uh, Dr. Rudolf Sota, and and just the science aspect of the of, of the coaching and 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 how you build these periodization models just really clicked and um, you know and came back and really focused more on the the physical side um, you know and and did my masters and was at Georgia Mason University you know and and just had this then opportunity to go to Kansas City in MLS and be the head of I guess head fitness coach at that time as well as a goalkeeper coach as well as an assistant coach um, <laughs> that first role and I think. You know, if you listen to many of our backgrounds of people, Burjo and I's age, I mean, there was a period where we were kind of these generalists where we had multiple hats and did a ton of coaching and 
we're on the field and in the weight room and then, you know, downloading data, whether it's heart rate or GPS or whatever. And, um, um, and then after two years in Kansas city, I had the opportunity to go to Seattle when they were an expansion team, the Seattle Sounders and, uh, built, started again as a single head fitness coach by myself and, you know, was there nine years. And after nine years had a sports science department and ended as you know, high performance director there. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go uh, to the Orlando Magic in the NBA. You know, and, and after being at Seattle, Seattle Sounders were fantastic. It was a fantastic part of my career, and um, it's a great club. And um, But after being there for nine years, I did have this kind of urge and itch to try to build something somewhere else and went to the Orlando Magic for three years and did the NBA. And and ultimately, you know, you, you hear from my background. I mean, I'm a, I'm a soccer football for person first and foremost and honestly I just really really missed the game and and again being around the coaching side of, of the game and um interacting with coaches daily and you know and had the opportunity to actually come to Austin where um the head coach it's his first coaching role he's a guy that I actually coached myself in Kansas City um he was playing in the German second division and come back and we got him and he was you know little Josh Wolf was a little beaten down um, from the German second division. We signed him mid-season, did a bunch of work with him, developed a good relationship with him. And then, you know, 14 years on, he's in his first head coaching job and, you know, wanted me to come support him in Austin. And and it's been great. And obviously it's a really um, well-supported club. Every game last year was a sellout. It's a great, vibrant city. Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of how I got to where I am now. Great story, great story. The obvious question is, uh, you know, the jump from soccer to the NBA. I mean, very different cultures and so on. What, uh, what did you find when you, when you moved to the NBA? Um, totally different. And, you know, obviously, I think this, we, we can take the, this talk down, you know, many different um, paths, you know, from the organizational side. I, I was, I think, again, I had this urge, and, you know, and, and I did almost go to an NFL team in 2014, a few years before that. So I did generally have this interest in working in another sport, you know, just just to to challenge yourself, to try to get better and um, to see what other sports are like and, and to see if what we've learned in our sport is, you know, able to be applied in other sports. And um, and I think, I mean, fascinating just, just from an organizational side, um, from the standpoint of, you know, you, if I look back again at my time with the Seattle Sounders, where it's really this, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's an entrepreneurial startup, right? It's a startup company. And you come in and we start really small and you add a piece and you, 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 you know, I'm by myself. And then I had a single staff member, you know, after a year. And then after two, three years, I had a second staff member. And then we had two more staff members. And then, you know, we, we have a, a full data analytics group that's supporting us and you know and and it was just kind of this organic growth and then you go into the machine of the nba and it's such a um structured organization um and that's that's been around for years and then to be around you know these you know presidents gms coaches that have you know just years of experience the nba and we're we're, we're used to doing things a very very certain way and um and trying to create a team, you know, trying to create a, an inter, interdisciplinary group, I think is, uh, I mean, it was, it was a great challenge, you know, but, but obviously just organizationally, it's such a, such a different animal. Yeah. It strikes me that, uh, that the NBA has been one of the sort of last teams to embrace 
uh, sports science. Is that uh, is that a fair fair comment? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think that it, it's it's. I think it's a different type of sports science, isn't it? I think again, if you look at you know some of the the work, let's say a P three from the biomechanics side and the you know, force plates. Um, you know some of the work they're doing there. I mean, it's it's they've been in that space for many many years. You know, when it comes to maybe player tracking, you know, again, it's a different sport because you get in the season and there's very few, you know, kind of heavier loaded training sessions. Um, you have optical tracking within your arenas, but you have you try to use wearables for your training sessions and how do those do correlate with each other. Um, there's obviously, you know, some challenges around the players' association as well in terms of what you 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 can and can't do, and which technologies you you can and can you can't use. So it makes it, I think, a really challenging sport when it comes to you know wearables and uh, and, and just tracking devices. Yeah, the frustrating thing I, I would imagine is that uh, during the off season you don't have much access to the players. And then during in-season, as you said, you're playing every day or every second day, and so you don't really have that opportunity to uh, to build. I mean, how did you manage that sort of situation? I think the thing about the NBA, and, and I think, again, I've, 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 I try to listen to your uh, your podcast week in, week out, and you've obviously had some great some great guests on, and you know, listen to Phil Cole's journey. I, you know, I think it's resonated with me you know, quite a bit. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's just different, right? And I think... Yeah. You know, I guess I would say you can you can focus on some of the challenges of the NBA, but the really good part of the NBA is that you can build these ecosystems around each individual athlete, and I think that's really unique to the NBA. And you know, essentially, you've got you've got a group of fifteen players, you know, and a lot of a lot of uh, NBA teams have roughly five assistant coaches, and they might have five then player development. Um, younger assistant coaches, five player development assistant coaches. You've got a decent high performance staff with a you know, number of physical therapists and, and strength coaches, and and a lot of the role of the you know, the high performance director um, in that setting is really trying to figure out, okay, each player is going to have their own assistant coach who's played who's paired with a player development coach, and who's the right performance coach for that person, and who's the right physical therapist for that person, and oftentimes, you know the you're working with the agent as well on what sort of external providers might be there um, that the player might want to use or the agent might want to use and you might be connecting with them and and you're really trying to you're, you're trying to put the right pieces around every player to get the most out of them and to maybe utilize the tech that that player wants to use and you know and 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 I think that's also a great challenge in and of itself every athlete has its own ecosystem that you're you're trying to manage around them Hmm. Burjo, I'll hand it over to you. Paddy, Paddy yeah, it's a, it's a great um, point of discussion and, and sometimes source of frustration, but what are the benefits of the athlete having that ecosystem around them? Um, we often hear, oh, well, they're not doing the team thing and they're going out and, you know, individual uh, fitness coaches have only that player's interest in mind and not necessarily the team. So it can be frustrating, particularly in more so in probably soccer than than um, than the NBA. But what are the benefits of of having that sort of myriad of people to deal with, if there are any? Well, I, th I think there's the benefits of it. If you can actually 
create relationships with those people. And and normally you can. I mean, normally they, you know, they, you know, it, it's about cultivating relationship with the agents that then allow you to talk to, you know, those practitioners. And, you know, and again, like, I'll, I'll be very honest with the Orlando Magic, there was not enough big time, you know, all-star type players that had those types of people, right? And again, as as you listen, you know, to your podcast, and you had Martin Bouchette on a couple months ago, and and he alluded to having that same type thing at PSG, I think, didn't he? Where yes. several people have their own practitioners there. And that, I guess I would say, like, that that's not necessarily anymore NBA specific, is it? It's it's the sports where there's a lot of money and players are willing to spend money to take care of themselves. I mean, that I think we have to see it. That's that's really all that it is. And then it's I think our job to try to connect with those people, and then and then also I think show value of your own staff to connect, you know, your staff to the athletes so that you do have. Um, you are working with that athlete. Uh, and again, I think what what impressed me about the NBA is that players come in, you know, for a 1030 practice, oftentimes every player has a short little 20 minute individual session either before or after. And um, and you and and you you know might then schedule a 10 to 15 minute little activation session, you know, with your strength coach prior to the 20 minute technical session. Which means every day each one of these guys has, you know, roughly a 30 or 35 minute session that you can work with the assistant coach to work on certain things, you know, in the weight room that flows into the court. Um, and and I thought that was really unique, and that was something, as you think about, okay, this is something that potentially from a player development standpoint, these players are getting far more individualized work than I've actually seen before in in the soccer setting. So. Sure. I thought that was very impressive from that side. So I think that's that's the positives of that is, okay, the players are you know are on such big salaries that even even players who aren't playing a lot are, you know, commanding and demanding lots of individualized attention. The reality is is that, um, in that environment, you can you can afford them a lot of individualized attention, and and you can actually do a lot with the with the young players. And you spoke about connection and and there's there's two types of connection there really it's your connection with the players uh i guess there's three your connection with their uh, entourage for want of a better term um and then there's trying to enable a connection between your staff and the players um how how have you done that successfully and and i guess the context of that um and you and I've discussed a little bit about this is is the cultural um, uh, nuances between your current environment um, where, where there's uh, I imagine a heavy sort of Mexican South American influence and then just briefly touched on the NBA stuff where you're dealing with you know as you said these these millionaire superstars so have you best found uh, your connection work and then and then facilitate the connection of your staff I guess yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's. I think our roles are more highly strategic. I think is the best way to say it. You know, and and I think you know, and and again, Berger, as you know, let's say you're at Arsenal and you probably had some of the same same you know concepts there in Arsenal, where you are managing, sure. you're in this really strategic role, and yet you're still trying to connect with athletes when you can but really sure. manage this 
group of practitioners. And, you know, I, I look at, you know, these roles in the NBA and in a lot of ways, they're really middle management roles. Um, and, and probably the hard part for me is I, you know, how I end up evolving my role in the NBA. I didn't probably have a lot of, um, as much connection with the athletes. Um, you know, maybe going back that I should have had more, but I think also it's, these are such, such strategic roles and, and you're trying to hire really good staff members and you're trying to put these teams around the athlete. And you're trying to touch base with the athletes to make sure they're happy. Um, but also you are, you're spending time as a strategist, really trying to, to move all the right pieces around. And I think, you know, to do that, you've got to have, um, a little bit of perspective, right? You've kind of really got to step back at times and look at your team and really have a perspective. And, you know, you know, and again, you know, as, as we've hear some of the stories here in, on the podcast, you know, and, you know, Adam Beard, you know, and, and the stuff he's done, you know, in, in major league baseball, you know, I, I think there's lots of similarities there where you're trying to pull back and look at the organization where the needs are and which coaches have to be where and which, you know, which strength coaches have to be upgraded and what technology they're using. And, um, I think that's, I personally feel like that's kind of the direction of our role in particular in, in America with these, you know, these staffs just evolving, growing year to year. And have you found, uh, in terms of the application of your principles, um, I guess with, with soccer initially when yeah. the, the sort of podcast explosion happened, uh, you were kind of known as the endurance guy um, in soccer and had some unbelievable sort of uh, advice and techniques to um, to get uh, guys aerobically fit by using some um, a more innovative methods that, that hadn't really been spoken about much. Did I? How did, you I did, yeah. <laughs> I, I was take, taking notes left, right and centre on some of those early sort of Mike Boyle podcasts and oh. things like that. Uh, how do you employ what was your best way of developing resilience in, in the NBA? And then, then we'll move on to soccer, I guess. But uh, how did you employ that sort of philosophy or if you employed that philosophy uh, in an NBA setting? I think, again, the, the, the NBA is really, it's just, it's just a very different animal. And, you know, and I think what's, what you don't see from the outside in the NBA is just the pure volume of work that these guys are, are taking on. Um, day after day after day and you know and so I think it's Phil Coles in his, is in his role because he's you know he's he's extremely you know he's he's a medical driven person and I, and I find these roles can be very medically driven and and some of that is because the the amount of volume that these guys are doing again when I talk about you know they're doing a 20 minute session before practice starts and they're having a two hour session. And then oftentimes on game days, they're coming in for a shoot around for an hour um, in the morning. And then they're coming back for a 7 PM game later that day. It's just, hmm. it's, you're managing the volumes, right? So you, you're not, you're not adding, we're, we're not adding anything on top of that. You know, I think um, you have to be, I think again, strategic in terms of, you know, kind of maybe getting some, some off legs, conditioning when possible and I think we did we did that uh, a good job of that I mean, our strength staff did a good job of that in Orlando um, 
we'd even played around with some of the ideas, you know, um, going forward around, you know, some of the, you know, Adam Beard's PhD work on, on, um, uh, um, repeat sprint training and in, in, at altitude to see if there's anything there. Cause I think I, was, you know, the, these guys, the NBA players, their, their joints, I mean, their ankles, knees, Achilles, patella tendons are just, they get so beat up that you're really trying to manage, I think more than you're trying to add. And what about um, moving on to, to sort of football and in in the current theme? What what has been uh, your main sort of weapon in in uh, building resilience into footballers, say outside the gym and then then inside the gym? By football, I, I better quantify that and say no. soccer. <laughs> yeah, what uh, what have been the techniques, I guess, that have stood the test of time for you? Um, you don't have to be too specific, but just generally, um, when, when dealing with soccer players and building resilience and robustness into them. I think what I've noticed, and you know, you've probably noticed this too, especially you know, your last year in Arsenal having a Spanish coach, is that the ex, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways our job as a high performance team in in football is to try to balance whatever the coaching staff is doing. Right. Most coaching staffs have a particular way of working and the robustness comes from being able to complement whatever that work is with, with whatever they're not getting. Um, and what I've, I think we've seen you know, with the whole Pep Guardiola um, innovation, again, Pep is, is brilliant the way he trained, you know, the way his, his concepts of the, of the game are, are brilliant. But I think what's happened is that most teams are, are, are having a whole lot of training exercises on pitches that are just small and smaller and smaller right and and they're trying to repeat these you know 4v4 plus 3 6v6 plus 3 7v7 plus 1 tight small field exercises and just the mechanical loads in these small in these small tight spaces are end up so high that one it's really working with the coaching staffs to make sure that you're not just totally overloading all of this you know mechanical load and change of direction load in small spaces and that we are getting out and we are sprinting and we are really closely monitoring you know high speed running and you know very high speed running over the course of the week because I think it, it, unless you step in and intentionally you know add in um, some sprint work you know in the middle of the week um, that they're just not going to get it and so I think for, you know for me what I found is that well I monitored that earlier in the career. I think now it's really being intentional around, you know, especially in preseason and making sure we're really hitting certain high speed running and very high speed running markers. Um, and, and the coaching staff is, is right on board. And again, Josh Wolf has worked with, you know, Steve Tajan for, for years with the Columbus crew and, um, you know, and with the U S national team. And, you know, Steve has that really same approach of, you know, making sure that you're getting this robustness through, you know, higher volumes of high-speed running in preseason, and then and then really touching that, you know, whether you want to call it microdosing or whatever, but really having a a midweek, let's say Wednesday, a match, you know, a match day plus four if you've got a full week where you are you are pushing hard and and and, and um, you're getting high-speed running and and hopefully you're getting it through the game, but if you're not getting it through the game, um, you know, you're. Uh, you're supplementing it at some point during the training session. You know, I think again, if it, you can always find the um, 
the pendulums, you know, within our sport, and you've kind of got Pep on on the one side with the, the really small, tight spaces and teaching the game through there, and then on the other side, you've got the whole Bielsa and murder ball and his his rolling somewhere between five to thirteen minute eleven v eleven, just max out, you know, throw a new ball in whenever it goes out, and this really fast, chaotic game that you know if creates a physical robustness at a certain point of the year, I think, at a club like Leeds. And, you know, but then Bielsa's teams also seem to hit a wall at other times as, as he's with them. So I think there's something that Bielsa's doing that is great because there are certain times of the year where they're just running over the other teams in the, in the Premier League. But but then they also seem to hit a wall as well. So I think, you know, there there's definitely, we've definitely toyed around with some of the ideas of the, you know, these high-tempo, chaotic 11v11 periods. Um, to really get some of that robustness through that. It's a uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating um, the different types of you know you couldn't get a more different uh, technique, I guess, or tactic or um, tool than the Bielsa to the Guardiola, um, you know, for for developing that robustness. So it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting discussion that could go on for for a fair while. Uh, I'd love to sort of turn the uh, attention to starting a brand new franchise um, with Austin. And uh, if you made any mistakes, because you had a fair runway, I believe, in terms of, you know, you, you had a fair bit of discussion beforehand and you could uh, um, have a fair bit of ownership over your staff, your um, the training schedule, it's very rare that you are in a position to do that, and it's because you, you sort of expertise and experience that you were afforded that opportunity. I guess talk us through some of the uh, learnings that you made from um, developing, uh, being part of a franchise that started from the start. Yeah, I mean that was it was a, a unique, special experience. I mean, it, you know, it's funny because I had the again the the entrepreneurial startup idea in seattle in 2009 when that kind of startup and it truly did feel like that and and a lot of um, similarities because you know ownership in seattle at the time basically never said no to anything i asked as we are kind of building everything out and and it's been you know very similar in austin um and then to be able just to to hire a larger staff than we had in you know in seattle which was you know obviously the league has progressed tremendously in the last 13 years and uh um, I think it's, I enjoy, I enjoy the idea of, of the startup company and, and you start with a group of people and you want to hire a group of, um, adaptable people that, that want to be challenged. Um, and so I think as we went out, you know, I think one, it was, a, if you look at some of the mistakes that ex other expansion teams in MLS have made, I think they end up bringing in a whole group of people that do not know the league, right? And, and Major League Soccer is a, it's a unique, it's a really, it's a really unique league um, in terms of the travel and the, the the mix. You know, again, we talked about the diversity of of the playing group and the time of the year. You know, playing through the hot summers, um, the the different surfaces, and some games are at altitude, and um, you know, so I think really bringing people in that, that knew the league was important to me. Um, and, and also just, I think having people want to come in that really 
want to learn and you know and and they want to get better and i think that that sounds cliche but i think um it was something i really focused on as i as i kind of hired you know the staff and you know and, and then i also think um one of the big things that that i think people don't talk about that that i had talked to the club about coming in was your you know your data infrastructure you know i think you how many times you know you Virgil, you've been through this where you you go into a club and you and you kind of got to see what's there and where all the data is and who's actually stored it and how they're visualizing it and what do you want to do with it and um and it's not really centralized and where's the physical performance data and where's scouting and where's uh you know your your match analysis type stuff and, and that i think was unique here is it really gave us an opportunity to really centralize our data structures like right off the bat um and then we can really, I think, hopefully down the road, that's going to you know pay us big benefits um, as we kind of you know develop a really good relationship with the coaching staff. That you know there's a what we're doing physically is really tightly tied to what we're doing from a from a tactical perspective. Um, so I think that again, using my relationship with the head coach is really key and kind of making sure that we start this from day one like that as well. Yeah, it's a, it's. Uh... A fantastic opportunity to be able to do that, um, and I, I certainly don't want you to give away any specifics of, of how you set that up. Uh, is there anything that you would um, you would change as to how you did it, or any you know major lessons that you learned? If you're going into it again, you might do a little bit differently. Um, I've definitely learned a lot about data infrastructure in the last. Um, couple months where we were in the process of rehiring the person that is in charge of that and you know and i think it's been you know we had we had a practitioner and the manager that's super smart came from the nba you know built a, a really really good platform um you know and, and i think it, we've had a lot of really really good discussions recently you know within our staff of of you know as practitioners you you want to create this this data infrastructure you can visualize and make decisions off of. Um, you also want to have the opportunity to to do quick ad hoc analysis on different things as well, you know. And sometimes those two don't necessarily marry up. Um, that it's about I think you know getting the right people in that that um, will provide you with the data structure and and you know and then also. Being able to, as practitioners, have the tools there on site um, to to do ad hoc analysis, especially as an expansion team, and we're still adding, we're still adding techn technologies as we go through. Um, so, um, you know, I think that's that's been you know the really interesting discussions that we've been having, and, and maybe something that I didn't necessarily think about. Like I, I would say that I did coming in want a a really structured. Um, Data platform that we're using to visualize things, and you know, and then I can tell that you know some of the guys and the staff, you know, we we're now at that stage where we're starting to bring in new new tech, and and our coaches are asking questions, and and now we also need tools that allow us this ad hoc analysis, which I think it's something we don't really talk about that much in terms of how we're actually using data. And what about um, uh, you mentioned you wanted to employ people that. Um... Yeah, we're willing to learn and, and some of those cliches that we, we hear about. How did you find, how do you discern that? Um, how did you find those people? Um, and yeah, what, what made those uh, men and women stand out to you? Maybe it's kind of, 
I think it's age as well. You know, and I think again, I think that's where where MLS, MLS, and soccer in general in this country. And I guess I'll say that um, soccer is is exploding in this country. You know, we're about to start this new whole second division platform where multiple teams now have a have a reserve team. Um, academies are taking off, and so there's just the the amount of unlike a lot of other places in the world, the amount of jobs that have been opening up in soccer in this country, from the collegiate systems, the academy to the second team structures, it is it is crazy. And you know, so um, we're really kind of you know have a just a ton of young people that really want to that you're constantly recruiting for. Um, and I think it's it's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge finding people that are that are educated, that are willing to be challenged, but also with us as as leaders, that you you know you you have to have this sense that you know with giving them a little bit of autonomy that they've got the space to be innovative. Um, so I think it's about getting them at the right time of their career, which again, that's your you know I, it seems like. We are now recruiting coaches and staff members in their in their early to mid twenties, just because there's just you know the su supply demand is so off right now. Um, but there's a lot of very very bright people that are finished with their masters in their early twenties and um, you know and and really want to learn and I think want to um, I, I think love the sport and maybe I think that's I think a lot of people want to be in sport. It's just important that I think people are in sport for the right reasons. And you know, what I think what we found is that people that they love soccer, um, they are smart, they want to learn on, under the right. You know, people they've been attracted to you maybe for the right reasons. I think those those are the types of people that really can take off within within your programs. What about yourself, mate? You've you've moved from. Seattle to Orlando to uh, Austin in the past uh, what five years? Yeah. yeah. How have uh, how have you transitioned that personally, and what sort of tools do you use to um, get that work life balance and um, yeah, just be able to, I guess, particularly from Seattle to uh, Orlando. Um, you're, yep. you're a visitor. You're, you're going temporarily. Um, you're uh, you're diving into a culture. What what tools do you use? I know there's about four questions in that. But how have you? Well, handled first, it? I'll say is that the the NBA the NBA travel is a it is a uh, shock to the system. You know, I think I I got used to it again with being in Orlando. Um, you, you don't people don't always think about this, but you know, Orlando. In Miami, or one of the you know the the furthest places in terms of traveling back um, from wherever you may be playing. So, um, as you're coming back to a a Florida team post game, you know you you got an away game, you come back. I mean, the amount of times where you know you you're playing lands at one thirty one thirty in the morning, and you get back home, and you know I always tried to make sure that whenever I'm home, no matter how tired I am, that I would always take my kids to school in those days. And you wake up and you take your kids to school and Maybe go back to sleep a little bit, or or, or go in. Um, but but it was a shock to the system, and I will say that it was something that, um, at the end of the day, it's, I I didn't necessarily care for it. I guess um, 
you know, if, if I'm being sure. very honest, I mean, yeah, 82 yeah. games is a lot of games. And, and when you, you know, if you think about these roles, you know, you're, you're coming into the arena 4.30, you know, 4, 4.30 before a game. And, you know, it's a 7.30 game and you're out at 11. And a lot of times you're, you're watching these warm up sessions from, you know, 4.30 to, to 6.30. Um, I think you have to have a passion for the game. Yeah, I really do. And I think if, if we're going to do our jobs well, I think we you have to have a passion for the game. And, um, you know, having now been in, you know, been in the arena for for uh, 300 games or so over the, the three years. I mean, I think that's I think I found personally, like, I'm not sure if I had enough passion for the NBA game to to watch that much basketball. So I think, you know, I think sometimes as practitioners, you know, we we should really figure out where our passions are, what we enjoy doing. And, um, and you know, for me personally, I mean, think when I'm when I'm in you know, at Austin, watching our guys train or coming in for training, like it, it doesn't feel like work, really. So I think that's that's how you know you're in the right place as well. Um, so I guess yes, I, I love that. I love that. And uh, last one for me, I'll hand you over to to Brookie. What uh, in in terms of going in and uh, either a establishing a culture, or b uh, which you might have done at say Austin and and perhaps Seattle. Um, but be walking into a culture and then tweaking it to the to the Dave Tenney way because uh, you know organizations have brought you in for a reason. What's the balance between working within an existing culture and then perhaps um, implementing things that you think uh, ought to be done? I think really, well, I mean, I would say in Orlando, it was it was still everything was still implementable because because you were there because the president wanted you, and that's again I think what's really unique about the NBA is you see you know basically these presidents come in and presidents GMs come in and you know and and they want their people right they want people that are loyal to them and so you're seeing you know pretty much across the board that as a new GM or president comes in there's these kind of wholesale sweeping changes through the club because I think that um, that the presidents and the GMs understand that they have to have their people in the room and again I think that's unlike and we're talking to you know Darcy Norman about this and Darcy's experiences throughout Europe you know like you you go into these clubs in Europe and there's guys that have been there for years and they know they're going to be there after you're after you're gone, and they know that, and you know that, right? And so, how much are they really going to listen to you? Yeah. And that a lot of NBA teams, that's just not the case. Is that a GM comes in and the GM handpicks their people to come in because organizational culture is really important, and oftentimes the only way to get that is to be able to bring your people in, and I think that's that's a big difference, I think, in in the NBA versus you know versus your traditional European football uh, organizations. So Dave, you, you obviously had a unique opportunity to build your own performance team at, at Austin. I mean, take us through the, the makeup of, of the team. I mean, uh, you know, do, do you have, do you focus on things like nutrition and psychology as well as the more sort of traditional therapy and, and, and sports science side of things? Yeah, it's, it's been a build-in. You know, I think actually our, um, we're, our nutritionist is just starting with us now in year two um, for lots of reasons. It wasn't exactly possible in year one, but um, 
we've we we have a fairly traditional staff of you know medical staff of three athletic trainers. We have contracted massage therapists to come in. Um, we have um, myself as high performance director. We have a head fitness and rehab coach that is also in charge of all strength training. Um, and then we have a sports scientist performance coach, a couple of interns. Um, and again, you know, I've gone out and hired a, a sports psychologist in the off season that now works with us and the coaches and is very, very good. Has worked in the NBA and Major League Baseball and is Austin based. Um, a dietitian as well that's, that's just started. And, um, you know, and again, I think that's that will continue to grow. We'll have we have an academy um, program as well with uh, four academy teams. So there's a you know, high performance staff of four to five practitioners there. We will start in 2023 with a reserve team, and you know, so we'll add staff members there. You know, and then again, as I said before, we'll have a um, in the process of you know finishing a um, data and analytics manager. As, you know, we call the new role, which is really just managing all of our incoming data, um, and that's that resides within our department, but really goes you know kind of um, horizontally across the rest of the. Um, organization you know in terms of scouting recruitment and then um, match analysis so and where where do you see uh, you know the performance area heading I mean what what's the next big thing I mean we've, we've obviously there's been a lot of focus on wearables and things like that at the moment I mean if you had to sort of you know pitch yourself forward five you know ten years I mean what what do you think the next sort of uh, the area where you can really make some some advances in in the whole performance area? I mean, I, I still personally feel like we're getting to it a little bit in, in European football and you know, you're seeing some of like the the Paul Bradleys of the world really trying to figure out the the role of, you know, physical performance and its impact on on the tactical side. And I, and I feel like um, we're just scratching the surface, um, you know, I, you know, as the game, you know, football in general, I mean, it's the athleticism of the game and the way these teams, you know, a team like Liverpool presses now, um, the, the amount of, you know, games they're playing and, you know, and how, and how much, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a physicality to the European game that's just continue, continuing to increase and improve. And, and yet that's because there's a certain kind of game model that coaches want to play. And so I, I do think for me, the next step is really, I'm hoping anyways, it's just this, this integration and collaboration between high performance and the coaching staff to make sure that we're really being thorough and that we're preparing the athletes for these, um, you know, for these outputs. Cause we're seeing, you know, we, you see in some of the teams that, that have fallen apart, you know, in, in Europe, um, that there's there's something that's off, um, but um, the way some of these teams want to play from a you know physical output standpoint is is remarkable. Um, so um, I I have seen I think in football I mean I do think that there's a across the board there's a a better culture towards strength training than maybe a decade ago. I, I do think that is improving. Um, even as we bring in players from other countries, I think that's there's a um, increased attention to it and there's the increased compliance to it that, that I've definitely noticed. Um, 
you know, I think a lot of the um, work that's being done on, you know, some of the you know, quantifying accelerations and decelerations, you know, the, I think going back to the way teams are playing, that the the uh, the quality of accelerations and decelerations by athletes is an increasing um, valued trait because of how teams want to play tactically. You know, so I think people are starting to spend more time, I think, looking at that as well. So um, I don't know if that, that answers it. But. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I, yeah, I'm <clears throat> interested you brought up, you know, Liverpool and their pressing. I mean, I was just watching them recently. I mean, you know, their, the level of, uh, of, of physicality required for that is, is just on another level to, uh, to what it was even five years ago. I mean, yeah. it's, it's remarkable, yeah. you know. Uh, and it's the big players. I mean, I think to me what's – it used to be, you know, you'd have, you know, you'd have your workers on the field, but then you'd have, you know, your, your skilled guys that, you know, okay, well, they're going to take breaks and they're not going to run. But then, you know, Liverpool is a good example of you've got, you know, I mean, you've got Salah and Mane and, you know, Firmino. I mean, they're, they're just going. They're pressing, and they've got yeah. to be able to do it, and to be able to to have that output, you know, game after game after game is, uh, you know, there's a huge, obviously, physical capacity that has to be developed. So, and it's interesting yeah, when when they bring players in. I mean, Tiago is a classic example. Who, when he arrived, you know, was your your classic sort of uh, he just you know cruise around, you know, get the ball, yeah. launch these beautiful passes everywhere. And now, if you watch him, he's a completely different player. He's got that physicality in his game that they've they've added to his game to take him to another level. Yeah, yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting. Um, the the journey that Liverpool um, afforded Klopp, um, because in his first year or so, you know, there was all those injuries and there was a lot of people questioning them, but. He had a, a, a strategy, and now it's it, well, it's well, it's really paid off. Um, now, really conscious that you've got a game tonight, so I really appreciate your um, your time here, Dave. I want to ask you one more before we go. Gotcha. And as as a elder statesman of the industry like myself, um, what would be the advice that you give uh, people entering the industry? Um, in our profession, not so much uh, in in Brookie's world, but in <laughs> in our profession, what 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 sort of advice would you give uh, younger folk coming in? I, mean, I think what I would say, uh, you know, as we kind of go and hire hire younger and younger staff members, and and I think it's interesting because you know we we can get into the whole generational discussions us us old guys and talk about the gen z's and how we manage the gen z's you know and not the millennials but um i think you know as we kind of came through i think you have to have a natural patience through your through your career right like if you keep doing good work and you you know i think there's there's two things i think be really patient and coach a lot of people and I mm -hmm. think sometimes there's this expectation that as people come in and, you know, and they, they get a new role, they get a new internship at a, at a good club that, you know, they're, they're going to be fast tracked. And, you know, by the time they're 28, they're going to make it. And, um, and I think sometimes there's a lack of patience that is creeping into some of our younger practitioners. Um, and, and I think part of that is generational as well. I think. Sure. That, yeah, I agree. Yeah. That, that's, that's part of the world we live in. Um, you know, I, I, we all know we've all been around enough younger practitioners that, that there's this natural stage, you know, set of stages that you have to go through as a practitioner where you, 
you go in, you don't quite have contextual awareness for a sport or or a league or a you know or a, a certain team, um, and you don't know what you don't know. And so I think it's important that you're patient and understand there's going to be a period of time where you don't know what you don't know necessarily, and and you might be bright, but if you just again ask good questions, um, want to be explorative, I think at times. You know, I think that the people, you know, the, the people that I find really make it in this industry are the ones that are, they're always asking questions. That they're always asking, what do you think about this? And, you know, hey, I was thinking this. What are your thoughts on that? And and I think sometimes, you know, we're around a couple of bright people and, you know, we've, we've all been around a couple of bright people as we've kind of evolved. And we think, okay, the, I know, like, I, I, you know, I know this is true because this guy said it. Um, hmm. But there's got to be a natural openness. And I think there's, there's what I try to tell the younger staff members is is innovation comes when you ask a lot of questions, you have an openness and you challenge me, but then also allow me to challenge you back and we'll have a really good discussion. And hopefully from that is where, you know, innovation happens. And, and I find that you have to spend a lot of time cultivating that, I think, in, in younger practitioners today. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's, it's a great point. Yeah, very, very true. So, Dave, thank you very much. Our time is, is up, unfortunately, but uh, it's been a fascinating uh, discussion and uh, I've certainly uh, learned, learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have uh, as well. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, we'll let you get off and uh, uh, do your game tonight. Good luck with that. And, um, and, yeah, we really appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers, Dave. Thanks, mate. Okay, thanks. Thanks.